Greetings, greetings, everyone, and welcome back to The Africanist. I am your host, Bomba, and today I'm back with another special guest, Dr. Noe Minyai. And Dr. Noe Minyai is the Randy L. and Melvin R. Berlin Assistant Professor of Renaissance and Early Modern English Literature at the University of Chicago. She works on early modern English, French, and Spanish theater with a critical focus on race. Her first monograph, Script of Blackness, Early Modern Performance, Culture, and the Making of Race, University of Pennsylvania Press, 2022, shows how performance culture helped strategically turn blackness into a racial category across early modern Western Europe. Co-editor with Leah Markey of Seeing Race Before Race, Visual Culture and the Racial Matrix in the Pre-Modern World, ACMRS Press 2023. She has published articles in Shakespeare Quarterly, Renaissance Quarterly, Renaissance Drama, and in many edited volumes. Dr. Njai, welcome to The Africanist. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks I've... for inviting me. And if I may, I just want to say it is so nice to be in conversation with someone who can pronounce my name correctly. That never <laughs> happens. <laughs> I understand. I cannot tell you how many times people butcher my name and I'm like, okay, it's okay. I'm used to it by now. So yeah, I totally understand. <laughs> so it is, it is a pleasure to have you on on the podcast because I, I really enjoyed your 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 book and today this episode will be centered on your uh, recent monograph script of blackness so your book talks about the representation of blackness in basically three different countries in Europe so could you tell us briefly about the general idea that you develop in this monograph yeah, of course. Um, so the book is really about how blackness became a racial category, right? How it became uh, considered red as a form of racial difference, not just any kind of difference of which there are many, but a strictly racial one. And what I mean by that is the kind of difference that establishes power relations, the kind of difference that justifies giving one specific group a specific placement in a social hierarchy, right? So typically uh, race is, and I think it's important to define that term because, you know, it's one of those terms that we use all the time and we think we all mean the same thing, but we don't. So I just always like giving my little definition of, of what I mean by race. Race is a system of power that is falsely packaged as a system of knowledge that essentializes and hierarchizes difference in order to justify and consolidate unequal social structures. And so what is interesting to me, what the book focuses on, is the fact that, you know, in early modern Europe, so I'm looking at um, 16th century to start with, the term race and the, the social structure of race was primarily organized around differences that were not about phenotype or skin tone. It was typically about religion, 
are you Jewish? Are you Muslim? Are mm-hmm. you Christian? Right. Or mm-hmm. it was about rank, what we would recognize as class. When people use the term race in France, for instance, at that time, they were typically thinking, are you an aristocrat? Do you have mm-hmm. blue blood? That's being of good race, right? And so what I'm looking at is how those things start changing in the 16th century. And of course, it starts changing because there's a new world order coming that has to do with what was known for a long time as the age of discovery, which is really the beginning of colonialism and capitalism, right? Things start changing because all of a sudden colonists and their metropolitan counterparts need to have access to free labor, right, in order to Mm -hmm. develop and so, of course, they go for slavery, and this is the this is how the development of uh, color-based slavery, black slavery, starts. And that needs to be justified, right? The mm-hmm. question that kind of powers my book is: How do you make that happen? How do you completely? How do you com- How do you convince an entire European population mm-hmm. that this is a new way to read blackness? That actually this practice is justified? How do you shape? new ways of thinking and of course those are negative nefarious terrible Mm -hmm. ways of thinking about blackness as a characteristic that it that has some um, essential components that justify Mm -hmm. inferiority and inferiorization and what i'm saying in the book is that in order to answer that question you need and that's not just the case for early modernity it's the case anytime at any point in time you need to look at representations. You need to look at media, and in mm-hmm. particular, mass media. How are Black people represented? How is the way they are represented starting to change at the time? And the mass media that I'm looking at, because I really, I think it was the dominant one at the time, is theater performance culture. And so this is how I end up looking at how theater, performance culture, and white actors in particular represented Black characters and the kind of habits of mind that that this uh, shaped. Mm -hmm. My idea is that the racialization of Blackness that happens in that time period is a turning point, you know? It's mm-hmm. something, it's a major epistemological shift from which we are still trying to extricate ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. To the point that the word race today is still synonymous with Blackness. And I'm saying that in order to understand this, understand the moment in which we are, how we how it came to be, you know, it's, we need to turn back to its origins in order to be able to, to deconstruct it. So that's the big idea of the book. And that's why I'm looking at um, <clears throat> what's happening in theater and performance culture in three of the big leading colonial nations that contributed to developing um, uh, Black enslavement as a trans-European practice, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that racialized Blackness as a trans-European project. So I'm looking at England, I'm looking at Spain, and I'm looking at France. Um, and yeah, I'm going to mm-hmm. to leave it at that for now. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Well, this is a, a, a an excellent book, and I really like the way you conceptualize race, especially the idea of racial matrix, or mm-hmm. uh, that we're going to talk about later on. But your book starts with three interesting scenes that took place. The first one took place in Spain in 2016 
The second scene took place in Paris in 2019. And again, the third scene also takes place in Paris and which involves you, a personal interaction you had with someone. Now, the common denominator of these scenes is they all depicts representations of blackness or what you call the affect substrate of the scripts of blackness. How do these scenes capture performative blackness in the Western world beyond the Anglo-American confines? Mm. I'm really glad you picked up on that that passage, the the opening of the book, because this is really, you know, this is something that was not in my doctoral dissertation. And this book is based upon my doctoral dissertation, <clears throat> although it's quite it's quite different. Um, and what I was trying to do by putting those three scenes here is bring my reflection on, on that deep past, right? 16th, 17th century, all of that is old. I was trying to bring it into the present by showing the stakes of thinking through those very old performance practices for the present. Um, and so, so I'm glad you, you noticed. And, you know, what's striking, I can talk a little bit about each of those scenes. The first one is a scene of what is known as the Cabalgada, Cabalgada de, de Reyes um, in, mm -hmm. in Spain, which is something that happens every year around the Epiphany, early January. Um, the, the kings are, you know, um, uh, welcomed into the city and the kings are Moorish kings. They are performed in what we would call blackface, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in North African garbs and sheshes. So there, there's some ambiguity as to whether they are to be read as sub-Saharan or North African, but mm -hmm. they are performed in blackface very clearly. Um, in ways that, you know, in the U.S., everybody would, <laughs> find that offensive and shocking, right? This yeah. is a performance of blackness by white people for white people. And when I was looking around, you know, to see how people responded to the show, all I could see was visibly white people who were enjoying themselves and didn't see the problem. There was nothing shocking about this. Uh, mm -hmm. to, and that's, that's, I think, what I was trying to bring to the fore with that anecdote, the fact that Blackface is a practice that you can find in many places outside of the Anglo-American world. And usually when we think blackface, we think just, you know, the U.S., minstrelsy, 19th century. Mm -hmm. I was trying to show that it's, it, it's everywhere in Europe. It's still very much alive. People enjoy it. And most of the time don't see the problem with it and don't know where that comes from as, as a practice. Um this, the, the other two uh, scenes that you mentioned are set in Paris because, well, I, I grew up in Paris, right? I'm a, <clears throat> I'm a French woman of Senegalese descent. Um, so it's, it's very important to me and close to my heart to talk about the French situation. And I'm always in conversation with um, Afro-diasporic activists in France right now in modern French Black studies like uh, Mamfatou Nyang, Maboula Soumaoro. I'm always, you know, mm -hmm. um, my research is fed by their activism and, and what they're trying to do. <clears throat> but so those two scenes, the first one is um, <clears throat> a little scandal that ho that happened in, in 2019. There was a there was a performance of a play by Aeschylus called uh, The Suppliants. Um, and some photos of rehearsal were leaked um, in which 
we could see that one of the actresses who was uh, supposed to play a Libyan character was a white woman performing in blackface. And here again, they didn't see the problem. Actually, mm-hmm. one of the, the official responses that was given was, I don't have enough black students in my class. <laughs> wow. <laughs> to which my response was, I mean, if you don't have enough black students in your classics department, your problem is much bigger than you think. Exactly. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, you know, ultimately the, the the performance was canceled because students and anti-racist uh, organizations mobilized to have to have the performance canceled. And a few months later, the show was performed, but not at blackface. Blackface was replaced by the use of golden masks. Mm. But what was striking to me about that that scene, that anecdote, was the institutional response to resistance, right? When the students and the anti-racist organizations basically said, this is wrong, this is blackface, we don't do that. <laughs> you know, the, mm-hmm. the institutional response from the university in university, sorry, but also from various politicians um, and, and from, from cultural institutions in general was, you don't understand what this is about. France is a colorblind republic. You are importing American concerns into French culture, right? Hmm. There was there was this, um, um, this defense mechanism, this very mm-hmm. deep defensiveness that you find in French society when we start talking about the real deal, which is racism. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so I wanted to to bring that up at the beginning of the book because it speaks to the institutional lives uh, or afterlives of early modern performances of Blackness. And then the last scene that you mentioned, indeed, this is about uh, me being much younger than I am now and going to acting school in Paris, uh, receiving excellent professional training as an actress, um, but also finding myself at some point in a situation where um, I was talking to my acting teacher and she had given me a part to work on, um, excerpted from a play that I don't think is really a great play, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> that's, not, that's not the problem. Um, it was focused on this character called Selina, who is supposed to be the quintessential African princess, transhistorical, taken outside of time, outside of space, Africa as a country style, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and... <laughs> And she was. She, she told me, "This is not working, uh, Noemi. You're not being quote unquote. You are not being or playing African enough for this part." Wow. And when she said that, she was. I mean, she wasn't a, aware of all the implications of what she was saying as a white woman talking to me. Um, but but she said it, and as she said it, she was gesturing towards her face in ways that suggested that. She thought maybe blackface could be, or using some prosthetics could help me find the blackness wow. of the character. Um, and again, I want to insist: like she was, uh, this this is not a person who thinks of themselves as racist. This is a person who was trying to help me find the character based mm-hmm. on what she knows, right, and what she's been taught mm-hmm. and years of experience in the world of performance and friends today. Um, and so I, I wanted to finish with that scene because I think it brings up, you know, 
not the institutional lives or the political lives of of European blackface, but it exposes some of the assumptions, right, that have powered the um, continued use of some of those techniques across time. Like she really thought it could help me find something essential, find something real about the character. Um, so those are, you know, those are some of the premises that I was trying to bring to the fore at the opening of the book by starting in the present before taking a deep dive into the past. Excellent. Well, we're not going to ruin it for the potential readers, but I think those three scenes are so interesting and excellent enough that everybody should go buy this book and read the rest of it. Now, throughout the book, you elaborate on the concept of racial matrix, mm -hmm. which is distinct from what you call the race paradigm. Mm -hmm. What is a racial matrix and how does it relate to early modern performance culture in Europe? Right. That, that's a really good question. So... Um, the way I think about it, there, there's only one, right? It's the racial matrix, really, and it contains racial paradigms. And so I, I theorized that in the introduction to the book. And basically, the key idea here is that um, race is, as I was explaining earlier, it is a structure of power that is consistent across time, but it can refer to different things across mm -hmm. time and right just like in 15th century france if you use the word race you're talking about whether you're an aristocrat or not right mm -hmm. still the same structure of power but the paradigm is different because it's focused on class or rank right mm -hmm. if you're looking at 16th century spain <clears throat> most often if people are using the word raza they are thinking about whether you're jewish or muslim so the paradigm the racial paradigm they have in mind is based on religion and i am articulating the concept of the racial matrix as a way of connecting all those paradigms of showing that even though they are predicated on concepts that to us from a 21st century perspective might seem completely different like skin color religion class actually those were at the time part and parcel of the same conceptual machine if that makes sense and i'm using the matrix as a metaphor to talk about that machine and i think the urgency of doing that you know first it has to do with providing an accurate account of how early modern people thought, because for them, when they use the word race, it could refer to either of those paradigms. So it's about historical accuracy. Um, but it's also, for me, about um, making sure that we don't fall for a divide and conquer <laughs> counterproductive approach to race, right? Um, there's always... Mm -hmm risk of having scholars 
pushback against early modern race studies saying, well, you're focusing so much on what you call race, but really what was important at the time and what is important generally is class. Let's talk about class difference, right? And so with the concept of the racial matrix, I'm trying to make sure that we don't fall for that kind of counterproductive division, right? Class, religion, all those fundamental categories that can be used to divide, to hierarchize, to essentialize people for strategic purposes. They all belong in the field that investigates and interrogates race. And the racial matrix is the concept I'm using to make that clear. Excellent. Thank you for detailing the definition of racial matrix. Now, in the book, you also delve into the historical trajectory of Baroque Blackup, more specifically uh, what you call the diabolical script of Blackness. What do you mean by this term, diabolical script of Blackness? And also, how did Blackness become the materialization or the representation of the devil, quote-unquote, during this period? Right, right. So the the book, as, as you were mentioning, this is what happens in the first chapter, right? Because the book is organized around um, uh, techniques of performance. So in the first chapter, I'm looking at um, black up or cosmetic prosthetic ways of conveying blackness, which is where I talk about uh, uh, the diab- this diabolical dimension that you're asking me about. And then the third chapter is focused on sound black speak, you know, what it means to sound black on stage at the time. And the last chapter is, is on dance. And so really the, the opening chapter is where I am focusing on that diabolical uh, genealogy. So um, basically, where does it come from? It comes from the tradition of medieval theater, right? That was shared all across Europe. Um, When you look at the tradition of Catholic medieval theater across Europe, Mm -hmm. you find that the easiest way for Europeans to represent the devil was to use charcoal, put it on their skin, right, Mm -hmm. in order to convey the sense of fallenness, because the the color black, regardless of, you know, outside of racial thinking, just Mm -hmm. in terms of color symbolism, was associated with sadness, mourning, loss, right? And from there, it could very easily have to do with the idea of sinfulness, the fallenness of the souls, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, that that have fallen to sin. And so this is how they decided to uh, perform the devil. And of course, there were other ways of doing it, right? Um, When you look at descriptions uh, from medieval authors who who tell you about the kind of amazing public performances of medieval theater that they saw. Um, sometimes you have descriptions that involve the devil having very luxurious costumes and tails and horns and you know animal components. But all of that was very expensive. The cheapest, most efficient, mm-hmm. most recognizable way of doing it was to turn the actor's skin black, basically. Wow. And so that practice, um, what I'm looking at in that first chapter is how this uh, legacy influenced how playwrights and spectators 
at the end of the 16th century and in the 17th century perceived racial blackface, right? Because uh, theater makers started using the same technique, the same charcoal, and, and of course it didn't remain charcoal, right? They developed cosmetics, paste, much more elaborate ways of rendering uh, brown skin and, and, you know, some more realistic <laughs> ways of doing blackface, if you will. Um, but they started using those techniques and that tradition to represent African characters or characters of African descent, right? And what is striking to me is that when you look at the, the texts of the plays that were written to accommodate such characters, African characters performed in blackface, very often the playwrights are using strategic cues, strategic terms that will reactivate the diabolical associations. If you look at um, what happens in uh, Shakespeare's Othello, for instance, when Iago, who is, you know, the racist, evil character in the play, mm -hmm. when he is trying to work against the noble Moorish general and to make him lose all credit with the Senate in Venice, with uh, his father-in-law, Brabantio, what does he do? He used terms that frame the Moor, the Black Moor, as a devil, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm saying this doesn't come out of nowhere. This comes from this tradition of medieval drama. And what was the effect of it? The effect of it was to establish some kind of overlap in the minds of spectators between the image of an African man or an African woman and the image of the devil, which was interesting, you know, in many ways, as in it could have a lot of implications. Uh, but of course, those were mostly negative ones. Mm -hmm. um, and those contributed, I'm arguing in the book, to um, <clears throat> to to changing or um, to shaping new habits of mind by uh, making spectators associate African people with a threat, with the figure of the enemy from within, which is the devil, right? The devil is always among us, working against us in our societies, or at least that's what the early moderns thought. Um, so it, it, it contributed to um, shaping ideas about um, sub-Saharan Africans as an internal threat that, that was always a menace that threatened to tear apart the social fabric of a Christian society. So to stay in that realm of uh, theater techniques, you also talk about uh, another interesting point in your book, which is the notion of, excuse my Spanish here, habla de negros, mm -hmm. which you translate as black speak. Correct. Now, yeah. this, this technique was prominent in, in Spanish and Portuguese theater. What are some of the characteristics of Black speak, and what function did it play in Western theater? Mm. So, black speak um, 
It's really interesting because it is a deeply comedic technique. Like you don't find it in tragedies. You don't find it in serious theater. You find it in comedy, which is the genre that people enjoy the most, right? It is the genre. When people attend comedy, they laugh together, right? Mm -hmm. There is a very, um, there is a community shaping dimension to the experience of attending comedy. And so I'm saying that in this, you know, as you as you correctly uh, noticed, primarily in Iberian theater, but not only, sometimes in English or French comedies, when you find those uh, sub-Saharan characters who speak with that completely artificial accent, representing whatever white people thought Black people sounded like, <laughs> um, it has an effect right, on how those spectators are going to band together, laugh together at the Black character, uh, and, and again, develop new ways of thinking about them. Um, very often, the accent in question, which I repeat, was completely artificial, right? Uh, because most, you know, there's no, there's no reason to... Um, to think that uh, language acquisition has changed, you know, that those dynamics have changed between mm -hmm. the 16th century and the 21st century. So a lot of su sub-Saharan uh, uh, people and uh, Europeans of sub-Saharan descent just spoke without any accent, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of them spoke with an accent, but that accent was not uniform. That accent was completely dependent on where they came from, different regional origins, linguistic distinctions, and all of that, right? Mm -hmm. Accents, as we very well know, are dynamic. They change over time. Not a single person has the same accent as another one. So this is what I mean when I say that Black speak as a performance technique that was recognizable and stereotypical was artificial, right? It was a product of, of white imagination. Um, but, but some of the, the work that it did consisted in um, allowing the white performers who used that accent when playing black roles to make puns, right? To mispronounce some words in ways that made puns, saying, for instance, coulasson uh, instead of corazon, Corazon means the heart. Corazon means a very uh, prominent behind, right? Mm. So this is just one example that, that you would find in Iberian theater, but mm -hmm. puns like that. And of course, it came also with lots of grammatical distortions, a sense that those characters did not have a proper grasp, right, of the language. So it, it was a way of conveying um intellectual inferiority under development right it mm -hmm. just like um a child can come across as funny when they are in the process of language acquisition right of learning how to master a language it was a way of um, um infantilizing those characters so those are all racializing dynamics that were packed as part of this comedic uh technique and one thing that in addition to all of this is, is um, well, I'm going to mention two things, actually, that I think are, are interesting about Black Speak. One of them is that Black characters were not the only characters who spoke with an accent um, on stage in early modern Europe. So sometimes having a Black character speak with a specific accent was a way of establishing connections with other non-white people who had been racialized. 
in the in the case of England and English theater, for instance, um, black speak was, I argue, one way of connecting sometimes black characters with Irish characters who had been developed earlier on in uh, English theatrical culture, and who were, you know, in real life, the Irish were being um, colonized very aggressively. They were the first victims of, of English colonization. Um, when you look at how the English were writing about the Irish at the time, it's, you know, those, <laughs> those tropes are very recognizable to us from a 21st century perspective uh, as, as colonial tropes. So I'm saying that black speak is a technique that allowed uh, for some connections between black folks and other people of color or people who were considered to be of color at the time mm -hmm. to connect. And I find those connections very intriguing and potentially interesting. Mm. Um, the last thing I want to say about black speak is that, you know, as opposed to blackface, which again, from an American contemporary American perspective, there is no world in which blackface is acceptable, right? <laughs> it's just shocking racist. And we all know it. Mm -hmm. I think black speak has not received the same treatment. I think there are there are still lots of situations. I'm thinking about the world of stand-up comedy, for yeah, instance. I, yeah, I was thinking about that too. Yeah, in, in which people are still willing to go there without necessarily, you know, and, and mobilize the same kind of comedic dynamics that were fueling the original practice mm -hmm. without necessarily seeing what's problematic about it. We're still willing to jump on the bandwagon as an audience. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, you know, Black Speak deserves more attention <laughs> than it has received so far. In, in the last chapter of the book, argue, uh, I quote here, that Black dances operated as racializing tools that construed Africans as endowed with various essential qualities, justifying their positioning at the bottom of the social order, while at the same time, they were used for the purposes of self-emancipation by various groups that either were or perceived themselves to be oppressed. Mm -hmm. Can you explain this passage as well as the notion of Black dances, which is another technique that you develop. In. Yeah. You picked up on a sentence where I'm <laughs> I'm trying to uh, cram the entire argument of that last chapter, which is 60 pages long. <laughs> so it's a bit dense. Um, I, I admit it requires some unpacking. Um, I will say that last chapter, the one that's focused on dance and what I call kinetic blackness mm -hmm. is... I will say is the one that I enjoyed writing the most mm. um, because it dance is the one domain where, where when you look at the archives, you actually find Afro-European people who are professional dancers and are using dance to um, emancipate themselves, make a living, gain agency. And that was very, very satisfying to work on for, for mm. a minute. Um, but so what I meant by this is is precisely that, right? That just like white performers were using uh, black up, so cosmetic blackness and black speak to um, 
to portray black folks as inferior, they were also mobilizing the domain of dance to do that, right? By developing dancers that uh, came across as very sexual, very lascivious, very animalistic, you name it, uh, by white standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and they mobilized that kinetic discourse in performance culture and on uh, the stages of, of early modern theater. At the same time, as I was mentioning a minute ago, there are actual Black folks at the time who were responding or mobilizing that technique. So I'm thinking, for instance, of a dancer, like Iberian dancer, Francisco Meneses, who lived in the second half of the 17th century. Uh, A ballad was written about him, actually. And if you read the ballad, it tells you that um, one day, so he was an enslaved man, right? It starts with him as a slave in Spain, uh, that one day he drank a little bit too much because it happens. Mm -hmm. And when his white master wanted to punish him, he convinced him to uh, actually forgive him and told him, I will pay you back all the money that I cost you, all the wine that I drank, whatever I broke when I was drunk. I will pay you back if you, because I'm a very good dancer, if you just let me dance, I will make enough money to pay you back. The master accepts, and actually Francisco manages to to deliver on his promise. He dances so well and so much that he makes enough money, not just to pay back the master, but to buy his own freedom, right? To pay Mm -hmm. his own ransom from the master. And he gets his free papers, and he Mm -hmm. starts a career as a free man of color in Spain. That's great. You think the story is going to end there? right? It's a happy mm-hmm. story, just like mm-hmm. the first act of Othello. It looks good. <laughs> and then things get wrong. Things go wrong. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And so the the rest of the ballad, it mm-hmm. mobilizes archetypal racist tropes of thinking about Black men. So you see Francisco, who starts his career, he, do, he decides to move close to Madrid, because probably because this is where he's going to have a big audience. Mm-hmm. And on his way, he sees a Black woman, a Black peasant, and he rapes her. Um, so the motif of the Black rapist, which is like textbook, <laughs> you know, textbook racist trope, mm-hmm. is already present and in use in the 17th century. He is arrested. And he gets hanged. And what's interesting to me about this ballad is the question of mobility, right? I'm saying that um, this is this question of Black dances was all about the possibility of Black social mobility at the time. When you have a man like Francisco Meneses, who is good enough of a dancer that he uses that medium to buy his own freedom, you know, um, it can become anxiogenic. For, uh, for white people who are attached to the institution of slavery um, to the extent that they end up writing a ballad that uh, frames the mobility of such a man as extremely dangerous, right? The rape being the ultimate form of uh, dangerous mobility. And so he has to be stopped. He has to be immobilized. And the figure of him being, uh, I'm going to use that word deliberately, lynched, right? is a way of immobilizing him, of stopping uh, that that push um, that Francisco Meneses represented. And he was not the only Black Iberian pushing for social mobility at the time. So this is what I mean when I say that um, <clears throat> dance was a site of contention 
you know, mm-hmm. um, of of hustle uh, and really of fight and contestation between white folks and black folks on the question of slavery and black mobility all across early modern Europe. I just gave you one example, but the the chapter is really packed with mm-hmm. you know instances from Spain, but also from France and from England uh, that show how dance was being mobilized both by black people and white people in order to uh, try and assert their privilege. Excellent. Now, I'm always fascinated by the process, the process by which people write their monographs. So I'm talking about here methodology, and I know you did a lot of digging into the archives. So could you share more about the process of writing this this book? Yeah, um, sure. <clears throat> so um, first, because I'm, deal- I'm, I'm dealing with three different linguistic archives, the French, the Spanish, and the English, um, it's worth noting that there are significant differences between the three, right? When I started working on the dissertation, doing some of that, that archival work, um, <clears throat> there was a clear imbalance between what was accessible in the English archives, which is most things, <laughs> You know, we have mm-hmm. databases like uh, early English books online mm-hmm. that, that have digitized everything, pretty much. That is that is a every extent text from that time period. Uh, you can you can access literary text at least. You can uh, access online because uh, you know Anglo American academia has just thrown all its res- put all its resources behind that project. By contrast, when you're looking at uh, Hispanophone and Francophone archives, fewer things were available. I will say things have started to shift since, you know, I started the research process. But but that was the case. So first, where to go? Online and look for everything that was available there. Now, um, for the for the cultural historical evidence. I had to go to actual physical archives. Uh, and that was one of the most thrilling components of the, the research. So during my um, last year of dissertation, well, no, my, fi- my fifth year, so the middle year of dissertation writing, mm-hmm. uh, I got archival funding to go to Spain. I went to Seville, where I saw uh, the performance that is recounted in the first scene, uh, but where I also went to the city archives uh, because I was looking for more information precisely about uh, Black dancers, uh, Black dancing masters, and the ways in which they were commissioned by the city to um, to, to to sponsor, to organize, to develop uh some uh, little skits dances mini plays that were part of the corpus christi uh festival processions so it's pu- it was public theater mm-hmm. funded by the city mm-hmm. you know and because the city the city does what it does it pays but it keeps receipts right and it keeps receipts better than anyone else <laughs> so if you go <laughs> to the city's receipts you will find uh actual dancers dancing masters saying well this is what our little skits on 
Black and Indian dances, quote unquote, represented. This is who the actors were. This is what the costumes were. This is how much it cost. These were the props. This is the synopsis. You know, this this is a great place to actually find uh, historical evidence um, that you need to mobilize when you are doing theater history, which is what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I'm doing racial history, but I'm also doing theater history. Um, Excellent. Mm-hmm. So going there, I also found myself in the um, in the um, archives of the the Archbishop uh, in Seville, uh, and there I would say to answer your question about method, uh, serendipity is really <laughs> is really key. Whether it be in that archive or in the colonial archive uh, mm-hmm. that was kept in Seville. Uh, where I find some really interesting stuff about um, brotherhoods that were black brotherhoods that were developed in um, in the island of the uh, Hispaniola, right, uh, mm-hmm. current Dominican Republic. Um, what matters is finding yourself in a space where the concentration of documents is such that even if you don't know exactly what you're looking for. If you do a good word search, you're going to find something you can use, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's how I landed on that information about Dominican brotherhoods. Uh, but that's also how in the archives of the archbishop, I landed on documents that were focusing on um, what I mentioned in both chapter three and chapter four, which is that very violent confrontation between the brotherhood of Los Negritos, the black brotherhood uh, that you found in Seville, and their confrontation with uh, white Spaniards who didn't want to uh, to let them participate on equal footing in the, the processions, uh, the Catholic processions that they uh, had um, earned the right to be part of, right? So serendipity, find yourself in a place that <laughs> is so rich, you will find something no matter what. And I would say it's a good, I mean, of course, to get your funding, <laughs> you need to have a project, right? So you, you do need to have a sense of what you're going to find in at least some of the archives. But just keep an open mind. The truth is that most probably the piece that you will end up opening chapter three about, you don't even know exists just yet when you hit the archive for the first time. That is true. I will say, you know, of course, I'm focusing on early modernity, right? So I have to go to archives with written documents and old stuff. But I am getting increasingly interested in what it means to think about living archives and people. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is definitely, you know, my 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 second book project, which I'm starting to uh, work on now, um, involves looking at um, you know, a deep history of black and brown solidarities and frictions from early modernity to now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that means being in conversations with scholars who are pushing their field in new critical directions. Um, uh, for instance, uh, in the field of critical Romani studies right now, mm-hmm. uh, living scholars, right? And getting a sense of what their engagement with black studies and the critical paradigms of uh, post-colonial studies are bringing to their work. So I'm increasingly you know, trying to turn to people, living people as archives. Mm-hmm. This is me, I'm excited. Excellent. <laughs> No, yeah, excellent. Well, I can't wait to read your second book and 
have you back on the Africanist podcast. Yes, please. Yes, please. <laughs> Now, we are nearing the end of the podcast, so usually this is the time for the fun questions. So, top three novels. What are your top three novels that you would suggest everyone to read? Okay. Uh, because I'm a theater scholar, can I give my top three plays? Of course. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. So, top three plays. Uh, I will start with the most recent one, Susan Laurie Parks' uh, Venus, that she mm -hmm. wrote in 1996. Absolutely amazing. Um, especially for this this podcast, this is a play based on the life of Sarah Bartman, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes known as the Venus Hotentot, and mm -hmm. it's a play that tries to resurrect her bring her back to life give her her flowers give her love and give her agency within the medium of performance which of course um you know victimized her since she was turned into a a, a freak show phenomenon so i highly and, and it's poetic it's baroque in its aesthetics it's powerful it's funny it it does incredible work with race history and community so i i, I think anybody should uh, read susan laurie park's uh venus okay. that's my top one mm -hmm. um Other play, okay. I will say, I just I love Samuel Beckett. I can't help it. Um, very, very European centered, but uh, but lovely. So, theater of the absurd. Um, I would say Endgame. Fun partie, Endgame. Yeah, uh, which he originally wrote it in French, and then, and then he translated it into English, which is so interesting. Like, yeah, you know, I'm sure you have this experience too. Um, and I, I'm a native French speaker. I live in the U.S. I live my professional life and personal life in English. So I'm always self-translating in a sense and seeing that turn into such a powerful metaphysical interrogation of the human condition. Mm -hmm. That's, um, you know, that that hits me in particular particular ways. Uh, so Endgame, which is Endgame. 1950s. Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy to say that I read that one actually was waiting for Godot. In, yeah. in my it was in British literature in my masters so we had that on our reading list well three of his plays Endgame Waiting for Godot there was another one that I did I don't remember but mm. I liked I liked Waiting for Godot I mean yeah. as absurd as it was <laughs> uh -huh. I still reference it sometimes but yeah okay that's cool and then <laughs> okay the last one Okay, I'm thinking early modern theater. I'm like, I have to give you an early modern play. Obviously, mm -hmm. that's my jam. <laughs> But there are so many. And like, it's it's hard to choose. Um, I'm not going to go for Shakespeare. I could, but I'm not going to go there. Okay, <laughs> I would recommend this. Okay, it's going to be this play by Lope de Vega. Lope de Vega is the Spanish Shakespeare of the time, writes 800 plays, extremely prolific. <laughs> Just, you know, an, an incredible playwright and a key playwright in shaping ideas, Iberian ideas about blackness at the time. So, you know, a, a fraught figure for me and intellectually. 
Uh, but he writes that one play called uh, The Discovery of the New World by Christopher Columbus. <laughs> and uh, what is interesting to me about it is that, you know, Spanish plays have three acts, right? And mm -hmm. so the first act is actually focused on what happens in Spain and the what is known as the reconquest, quote unquote, the fight of the Catholic kings against the Moors, against you know the 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 Islamic rule, uh, the African rule that was uh, set over Al Andalus uh, and that had been set there since eighth mm -hmm. century, right? Uh, and you and you get that that character Christopher Columbus going to the king, trying to get funding for his little mission. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you see the kings absolutely not caring about this, being entirely focused on their relation to Africa. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I love conceptually about this play. First, it really makes fun of Columbus. He's described as an idiot, semi-mad character. There's very little respect <laughs> for Columbus. I love that. <laughs> uh, but also it's a play that really connects the question of um Europe's Africa, Europe's relation to Africa, mm -hmm. and Americas, the American project and the new world order that came from it. So yeah. I would say if I can recommend a play, read mm -hmm. The Discovery of the New World by Christopher Columbus that was written by Lope de Vega. It's Excellent. short and it's mm -hmm. really good. <laughs> okay, cool. Now, top three dishes, top three dishes that you cannot live without. Okay, that will go faster. <laughs> Uh, the first one is uh, ratatouille because okay. it's, uh, you know French French roots. That's my, the dish that my grandmother would cook. I just love it. That's just how it is. Mm -hmm. The second one you're going to be familiar with is tibujin because yeah. of Senegalese uh, roots, and that's just that what my aunt would cook, and that's the best. Mm -hmm. I found the right restaurant that delivers it close to where I am in Chicago. So I'm very oh, pleased. nice. That's right. Is it Badu uh, by any no, chance? No. No, no, no. It's uh, okay. Gore. Oh, okay, okay. I don't know that Gore. one. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the third one is uh, my my husband is of Filipino descent. And uh, chicken adobo is one, you know, it's the equivalent of tibujin in Filipino culture. Yeah. Uh, it's one excellent ways. It resembles yasa a little bit. It's not exactly, mm. you know, it's more garlicky than uh, oniony but it's yeah good. excellent uh, so chicken yeah cool now top three places on your bucket list oh okay i haven't traveled in a while um <laughs> like okay where do i want to go that i've never been in okay um, i want to go to brazil i want to go to salvador de bahia okay brazil yeah mm -hmm. um i want to go to cambodia I want to see mm -hmm. those temples, those incredible temples. Mm -hmm. uh, and I want to go to Morocco. I've never Morocco. been. Morocco. Yeah. I've been there. It's a great place. I've been to yeah. Casablanca. Yeah. Okay. I'll definitely... reach out for tips and recommendations. <laughs> I will definitely recommend Morocco. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I also heard good things about, you know, uh, Brazil and uh, Cambodia. I want to go to on an Asia asia tour to just yeah. eat street food so ah. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. on my bucket list 
Yeah. Well, Naomi, this was a pleasure to have you on the Africanist. And again, I recommend to my listeners to buy the book. Scripts of Blackness is excellent. You'll enjoy it. And thank you so much for your availability and uh, coming to talk to us about your work. We really thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. This was delightful. Thanks for having me. It was an honor. <laughs> yeah. And on that note, I give you guys rendezvous uh, for another episode of The Africanist with another special guest. In the meantime, stay safe and healthy and happy holidays. Lutons pour la paix Kondiamo Africa Mon lanyan Mane Africa Moy sunyo natange